see if anyone, I don't see anyone walking in yet, so uh, still walking in, but let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Father, again, we thank you that you are our God, Lord, that you have sent your Son, and that we uh, have one who is a Savior, who is uh, able to understand who we are, where we are, that has created us inside and out. And Father, we just pray that tonight you would uh, allow us to, to peek in again at his life, that we might understand him better and understand you better, and then be able to serve and worship you better. Uh, so Father, tonight, just open up your word to us fresh and new. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said earlier, when some were here, uh, I do still have six of these books, uh, Chuck Swindoll's book on Jesus, an intimate uh, Profiles in Character, It's the Greatest Life of All, Jesus. Probably one of the best that I have read on his life outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, highly recommend that. Um, in fact, that whole series is, is a wonderful series. He's taken different characters throughout the Bible, and I think this is the seventh or eighth one. He did them all and then realized, you know what, I never did Jesus. So he did Jesus <laughs> as the last one uh, with those. So... Uh, they are $10. You can pay me. You can write a check, drop it in the offering. It all goes into that bucket anyway. Um, but uh, if you want one of those books, that'd be great. Um, we have been looking at the life of Christ. We looked at his pre-existence uh, a few weeks ago and the fact that he does show up in the Old Testament um, as the angel of the Lord, uh, as well as a fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And uh, and then last week we looked at the birth of Christ, uh, kind of got a little bit different look at that Christmas story than what we might normally be used to as far as Christmas pageants and Christmas cards and uh, Christmas specials on TV are all about. And uh, oddly enough, I think probably one of the best Christmas specials uh, out there is Charlie Brown. Uh, you know, the cartoon is probably one of the best, most accurate uh, depictions of the, the, the birth of Christ and what Christmas truly is all about. Um, tonight we're, gonna, we're, we're picking up right where we left off. Uh, we had Jesus at the age of 12 and uh, in the temple and then kind of just disappeared. We don't hear a whole lot or anything really about him until he comes on the scene uh, when he is about 30. Luke tells us he was somewhere near 30. He was about 30 years of age when he finally went public. So we're going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, John the Baptist, about uh, uh, Jesus' baptism and, and our own baptism. We're going to talk about Jesus' temptation and our own temptation, and then kind of where Jesus sets up shop for his public ministry. And then next week we'll pick up there with uh, some of that early stages of how he really started small um, and, uh, and grew from there. So... Uh, Tonight we want to look at John the Baptist, and I've given you in your notes, I, instead of just printing them all out, I gave you in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where the story of John the Baptist is, where the events uh, of his life are, are located for you to go back and read. Um, I do encourage you to read each gospel uh, to get a clear picture, to get them all, because they don't all tell, they all tell the same story, but they all share different details of that story, so uh, important for us to read them all. Now, what do we know about John the Baptist? Um, it was a miraculous birth uh, to Zechariah, who was a priest, 
and his wife Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. And Aaron was the first priest. So there's a priestly family uh, that, that John the Baptist uh, uh, was born into. Now, what is it about Elizabeth? Do I have that on your notes? What is it that was miraculous about John the Baptist's birth? Her age. She was barren. She was very old. She had not had children. And she was told that she would give birth to a son. And uh, Zechariah uh, had a hard time. Actually, Zechariah was told had a hard time believing that. And what happened to Zechariah? Couldn't speak. He was struck mute. Um, he was unable to speak. And at what point was he given back his voice? When the baby was born and he wrote, his name is John. Um, because they said, why would you name him John? There's no Johns in your family, um, which was very important to them to maintain family names. And when he said his name is John, uh, his tongue was loosed and he was able to, to speak. Um, he lived in the Judean desert, uh, which would be somewhere right down in here around Jerusalem. This would be the desert area uh, here near the Dead Sea. Um, Jericho, Jerusalem, all right in, inside that, that little circle of Judea. That's where John lived, in the desert. Um, now understand that, that desert or the wilderness it is sometimes called. Now when we think of wilderness, we think of trees and, and forest and those sort of things. That's not necessarily the case there. It was a desert, and the wilderness was scrub brush if you had anything, Okay. There was more rocks and sand than anything else in that area. But it was a common place where God met his prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament would many times go out to the desert to meet God. Um, and God met them there. And so it made sense for John the Baptist to be one that lived in the desert. Uh, he dressed how? In camel's hair and a leather belt. Um, in fact, he resembled the prophet Elijah. Second Kings 1.8 said they replied he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. Um, and so John is coming on the scene dressing like Elijah, living like Elijah. And there was a, a prophecy saying that Elijah would return. And so many thought that John the Baptist was Elijah, looked like him, acted like him, um, but was he Elijah? That's a, a, a doctrinal theological question that's been asked for, for ages. John the Baptist, we have three, three people that spoke to it. Jesus talked about it, or John the Baptist answered the question, Jesus answered the question, and an angel told Zechariah a bit more of the answer. In John chapter 1, verse 21, they asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So John the Baptist said, I'm not Elijah. That should have been enough for us. But we still, people still had a hard time with it. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus' wording of this is interesting and, and signifies that John was not Elijah, even though it sounds like he's saying that he was. Uh, he is not Elijah come back to life, but he fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi saying that Elijah would come. He says, if you can accept it, if you are willing to accept it, 
He is the Elijah. He's not Elijah. He's the Elijah. And that makes a whole lot more sense if you understand what the angel told Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 when he was announcing to him that Elizabeth would be, uh, become pregnant and the son that they would have will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John the Baptist was not in the prophecy in Malachi, was not about Elijah personally coming back, but that there would be one in the power and in the spirit like Elijah that would prophesy the way Elijah did. And John definitely fulfilled that prophecy. Um, what else do we know? He dressed, or he ate what? Okay, what's a locust? That's a locust. Okay, that's what John ate. Now, a lot of people say, well, it was this locust pod off this locust tree, and it really was a leafy thing. No, that's just what we want to believe he ate, because we would never eat those things. Um, but locusts and grasshoppers, basically the same thing. Interestingly enough, in Leviticus chapter 11, uh, when God was laying down the law on what they could eat and could not eat, this is what God says. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable to you. He's on all six. Uh, there are, however, some winged creatures that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. But all other winged creatures that have four legs, you are to detest. So locust was an understandable meal. Um, even to this day, they will eat fried locust or roasted locust that they will catch them and they will eat them. This is what John lived on, locust and wild honey. Interesting enough, it was wild honey. He didn't have a Jim Taylor who raised bees that could supply you with honey when you needed it. Didn't go to the store. He found it out in the wild, and he would eat it as he was hungry. Um, so locusts and wild honey, it's the only thing we're told he eats, and uh, maybe he ate some other stuff, but this was predominantly his diet. And then he was called what? What was his nickname? Y'all know it. He's John the Baptizer. Um, that's what he is known um, as he offered baptism as a sign for sorrow for sin. Now, John's message, uh, as he was the forerunner of Christ, he was preparing the way. And so understanding him is very important to understanding Jesus because John is going ahead of him and preparing the way for what Jesus was going to come in and do. Um, and so his, his uh, message is really uh, three different, good three-point sermon. Um, he talks about the nearness of the kingdom of God, that it is close at hand. Uh, the kingdom of God being the rule, the reign of God is close at hand, closer than some of them would be willing to uh, accept or believe. And basically he says, I'm the forerunner for that. Jesus is coming and Jesus is representing the kingdom of God. Second thing he said is that judgment was near. He said, judgment is near. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and Luke chapter 3, verse 7. That doesn't happen very often, that it's the exact same chapter and verse. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Okay, there's judgment coming. Kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is near, and it is bringing judgment with it. And we need to, and, and so he was preparing that way. He was preaching very much judgment. 
He says in Luke chapter 3, and we get a little more of the sermon in Luke than we do in Matthew. He says that the axe is at the root of the trees. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's that idea that, that God's going to come in and with judgment wipe out the trees that are, are worthless, and he's going to go at the root of the tree. Okay, I had a holly tree. Tree, bush, what do you call it? Mine looked like a tree because it was about 10 foot tall. I've seen some that look more like a bush. If mine had looked like a bush, it might have survived. But it was this thing that someone planted about an inch and a half from my foundation. And so when it grew up, it grew right straight up the side of the house. And then it hit the overhang, and it was just causing me all kinds of trouble. I didn't like it. The leaves are incredibly pointy. And so what did I do? I took my loppers, and I just whacked that thing all off to where I had a stump about this high, about this big around. I said, there, fine. The next year, it was about 10 feet tall (laughs) and still growing like crazy. I couldn't kill it. Why couldn't I kill it? I didn't go to the root. This year, I took an axe. And I started busting that thing down at the ground, and I decided with my axe and my shovel, that thing was coming out. And I grabbed a hold of one of the roots after I'd cut it off of the the trunk, and I grabbed that and pulled that back. That thing was about six feet long and about three feet wide, right underneath the surface of the ground. It's no wonder I couldn't kill that thing just by cutting it off. And so what John is saying here is the axe is at the root of the trees. We're getting rid of all the rottenness. Okay? There's no chance of this growing back. We're going to completely get rid of it. And, uh, and so be, beware. Judgment is near. He goes on in, in chapter 3, verse 17, and he talks about the winnowing fan. Anyone know what the winnowing fan is? What do we do with it? How does it work? Right. You basically took the, you scooped everything up, and, and you would throw it up in the air, and then the wind would blow the chaff away. And the wheat, the stuff you really wanted, weighed enough that the wind didn't blow it and it came down. Here's a couple uh, ideas of what that would have looked like. It was either you had the fork and you were just throwing it up and letting the wind carry it away, or you actually had like a a basket scoop that you would do. And eventually all you would have left in the basket was the wheat that you wanted. And he said his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, And so beware, it's coming. Folks, you've had 400 years of God not speaking. John the Baptist comes in and says, he's coming. The kingdom is near, judgment is near, and his final message is, what do I do with this? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now following 400 years of silence, Many of the Jews had lost any form of a relationship with God. They still went through a lot of the rituals. They went through the temple. They did all of that. But as far as a relationship with God, it had been lost. There was no personableness to it. It was just ritual. It was just right. It was just showing up for church every Sunday because that's what you did. John was calling them back their original relationship with God, back to when God interacted with them, back to when when God spoke to them and led them, and, and it meant something. The urgency is seen in the fact that another is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, a greater baptism than what John is doing. Now, within John's, 
while John's baptism was an outward work, he said another is coming that would come and provide a work from within. That it's not just enough to have the outward baptism. We need the inward baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need that change. We need that transformation. And he said, what I'm doing, all I can do is that outward form of baptism. But there's one coming who's greater than I that can actually change you on the inside, that can prepare you for the coming kingdom, that can prepare you for the judgment. Now, baptism was nothing new to the Jew. It wasn't invented by the church. It wasn't invented by John. We give him the name, the baptizer, but he didn't invent it. Okay, Gentiles would, would come uh, who would convert to Judaism had to go through a purifying bath to be considered clean. They had to go through a baptism. And so a non-Jew who wanted to convert to Judaism had to go and be spiritually or ceremonially clean, and they would go through the rite of baptism before they would then be allowed to worship in the temple or, or worship in the courtyard. They still weren't allowed all the way in because they were a non-Jew. The fact that John was preaching the need for Jews to go through that ceremonial cleansing ruffled just a few feathers. The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, why are you preaching baptism? Jews don't need to be baptized. It's only the, the unbeliever, the heathen, the, the pagan, the Gentile, the dirty of dirties that need to be baptized, that need to be cleansed. John came with that message that you too, because you've only done it on the outside, there's one coming that's going to change your inside. The inside needs to be baptized. The inside needs to be cleansed and transformed. Uh, the Jewish leaders were very upset that he was requiring Jews to be baptized and, and asked him why he was baptizing. His answer there in John chapter 1, now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Which brings us then to Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River. Um, the Jordan River is the, the main river that runs through uh, Judea, Samaria. Uh, it starts uh, way up at the top in Mount Hermon or Hermon and runs all the way down through the lake of some word I cannot pronounce and not even going to try. Uh, it's this word right here if you want to give it a shot. Uh, and then it runs from there into the Sea of Galilee and then all the way down into the Dead Sea. Um, it begins, like I said, at the, at the base of Mount Hermon. And up there in the north, remember we talked about Nazareth being such a lush and green and fertile Place. Uh, this is actually the, the Jordan River flowing into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so, I mean, it's very, very lush, very green, great, you know, flocks and, and herds and farms and everything there. 223 miles from where it starts at Mount Hermon until it gets down to the Dead Sea. It starts at 230 feet above sea level. And it flows down to, when it empties into the Dead Sea, at 1,312 feet below sea level. So it drops, what is that, about 1,500 feet in 70 or 80 miles uh, is what it drops. So it's a fairly significant drop. And when it gets down to the Dead Sea, it's dead. Okay, this is the wilderness of Judea. Okay, now you can see trees 
back in here. That's where the Jordan River runs, but you don't have to go very far until you hit sand and rock and nothingness. Um, and so uh, we see then that John uh, was doing all of his baptizing in the Jordan River, and the book of John, chapter 1, verse 28, says that all this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So actually, Bethany's down here at the bottom, right in here, on the other side of the Jordan, so as not to be confused with this Bethany just outside of Jerusalem where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived, um, and Jesus would go through. So this was the Bethany, John tells us, that was on the other side of the Jordan. So we have John the Baptist living in uh, the Judean desert, but in order to do his baptizing, he crossed over and did his baptizing in the Jordan uh, right about there. Um, we don't know how long John preached in the desert, but one day was different than all the others because he had been preaching about the one who was coming, the one that is among you that you do not know, the one that I'm not even uh, worthy to tie the sandals of his, of his uh, or the, the thong of his sandal. I'm not even uh, worthy to tie that is coming. And it's at one point as he is baptizing that he looks up and he sees the one he's been talking about. He sees Jesus coming out of the crowd and coming down to be baptized. Uh, Jesus traveled all the way down from Galilee. I mean, he was living in Nazareth at the time with his, his father and mother, as far as we know, in the carpenter's shop. And he made the trek down to where John was baptizing. Um, and Jesus surprises him by coming down to the water to be baptized in Matthew chapter 3. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. John was baptizing people for their sins, for the forgiveness of sins. He said it before. He says, my baptism is a water baptism for the forgiveness of sins. No doubt some of them were coming down and they were confessing those sins as they entered the water. Or as they were leaving, they were confessing their sins. And here comes Jesus, the sinless one, to be baptized. And John wasn't real sure why. Um, John knew that Jesus was sinless. He says in uh, John 1, 26, 27, 29, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John testifies here to the glory of Christ. That this one who you do not know is coming from above. He knew exactly who he was, where he came from. Um, that this is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wrapped it all up in those, that one quick sentence as to who Jesus was. Um, the statement, I, I got a, a quote here from Michael Card. Um, the statement about loosening the sandal thong is all the more significant given the Baptist's popularity. I'm not worthy, worthy even to untie his shoe, he says. The rabbis taught that every task as a slave, every task a slave does for his master shall a disciple do for his rabbi except the loosening of the sandal thong. That act, act was seen as too demeaning a task for the disciple. 
So if you look at a slave-master relationship, that was the same uh, relationship as a disciple to his rabbi or to his master, the one that he was his teacher. And so a, a, a disciple was expected to do everything for the teacher that a slave would do except that whole untying the, th the sandal thing because that was seen as even too demeaning for a disciple. But John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. That here comes the rabbi, here comes the Lamb of God. I'm not even worthy enough to be his servant, to be his slave. Um, and so when we understand that, we see where John, John's conf conflicting spirit is in not wanting to be the one that baptizes him. And yet Jesus comes and says, you have to do it. You have to do it to fulfill all righteousness. John submitted to baptism in order to fulfill all righteousness, that is to do everything that God required. You remember when we talked yesterday, or last week about Jesus going through circumcision, that that really was the first act at eight days old of him fulfilling all righteousness, of him fulfilling the law. But he says he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And at eight days old, he started to fulfill it. And here at 30, he's continuing to fulfill it, continuing to do everything that God requires for all righteousness. Um, John had been preaching the need to be baptized as preparation for the coming of the kingdom, but Jesus needed to follow that command. Jesus needed to follow every command of God perfectly. Jesus was going to carry the weight of every sin on his back. And for Jesus to become our righteousness, he had to fulfill every command of God. Sometimes we forget that. We think that because he was God, he would just, that just was a given. But not only was he totally God, he was totally human. And his totally human side had to fulfill every requirement of the law. Because if he slipped up on one spot, one little law that he didn't carry out, he couldn't fulfill all righteousness for us. He could not be our righteousness. He could not be our Savior. And so when he came down and John said, no, I can't do this. You should be baptizing me. He said, no, we need to do this. You need to do this so that all, all righteousness will be fulfilled. And John then understood it. He understood that that's why Jesus came and he consented to do it. Now what happened next must not be overlooked. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Heaven opened up. Okay? God had been silent for 400 years. From the Old Testament till now when Jesus was on the scene, when John began preaching. And the first thing that God says is, this is my son, whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. Because he was going to be doing, uh, com completing all of righteousness and becoming the Messiah that would take away the, the sins of the world. He would be the Lamb of God. Heaven opened up and the glory of God descended upon him and God speaks. This marks a turning point and Jesus' life and ministry. That he leaves his life as Joseph's son, probably working in the carpenter shop, although we don't know, but that's probably what he did. That's usually what the eldest son did, join dad in his work. And he begins his earthly ministry 
at what Luke tells us is about the age of 30. And so he's now making a, a major transition in his own life. He is now going public with who he is. Um, yeah, we don't know. We got a guess. But uh, yeah, when Mary, remember when Mary found out she was going to be pregnant, she ran to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who was already six months along, um, as soon as Mary entered the house or the room where Elizabeth was, the baby leaped within her because the baby understood the presence of the Savior had just walked into the room, um, which we don't know how old Mary was or how far along she was, but if we truly believe that human life starts at conception, that human life that walked inside that room, inside Mary, caused the baby inside Elizabeth to leap. And so I'm sure that John, they may very well have met. They, they did live um, a long way apart because as a, as a priest, he lived down in the southern area and Mary lived up in, in Nazareth. So how much they saw each other, we don't know. But John spent a lot of time in the desert and God, you know, talking to him and, and explaining his call and what his message was. Right. Right. God had given him signs. And so when this happened, he, he then knew. But even he doubted because when he was in prison, he said, go ask him if he's the one. I need, I need to know. Um, because he's in prison and he's guessing his ministry is over. And have I fulfilled what God's called me to do? Go ask him if he's the one. And Jesus says, go tell him what you've seen. And when he went back and told John was okay then that, that he had uh, completed that. So from this point on, Jesus is now moving forward. But we need to understand baptism. Because it is very important uh, for us as believers to understand what this whole baptism thing is about. Because Jesus changed baptism at that point as well. He changed the ritual. He changed the ceremony to mean something totally different. Before, it was a cleansing that they had to go through to prove they were a Jew in order to be allowed to worship. But Jesus now changed it and said, no, it's now an outward sign of the inward change. It's the outward sign of what Jesus is going to do or has done already, not going to. He's already done it on the inside. So it's not anything they now did for salvation. Um, and today, it's, it has nothing to do with being saved. It comes after that. It's, it's an outward sign of an inward change. Um, and it is a step that I believe is incredibly important. Um, if it wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have done it. Jesus wouldn't have gone through. We wouldn't have uh, heard of the disciples baptizing uh, if it was not an important thing to, to have done. So why be baptized? Number one, obedience. Uh, the reason for baptism is that Jesus commanded it. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, um, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So go make disciples, baptizing them. Okay, it was an important step in that, that process of being a disciple. Um, it was telling the world, I'm different. I am, once I was the carpenter's son. 
I've now accepted Christ, I've been baptized, and now I am a child of God. I'm different. You can expect different things out of me. I'm going to be thinking different, acting different, behaving different. Okay? Everything about me is being transformed. Okay? That's what baptism signifies. So it's, we do it out of, out of obedience. Who qualifies for baptism? Any believer. Anyone who's confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, it's a testimony of personal faith. Acts chapter 18 says many Corinthians believed and were baptized. Acts chapter 8, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And at that point, they stopped, went down to the water, and were baptized. Did I see a hand? Yeah, with the, uh, the Southern Baptists or any Baptist church, that they've gotten their name legit um, because they will as soon as... And I was baptized that same way, not in a Baptist church, um, but it was uh, in a Christian church, which, I don't know, it was kind of a denomination of non-denominationalists. I can't really explain it, but they did the same thing. If you came forward at the end of the service and you prayed and accepted Christ, the service just got extended by about a half hour because you would go up and then you would be baptized that very same day. Um, there's good points about that and there's bad points about that, um, like there is with anything. Um, because I think it needs to be a, a thought out, thought through uh, commitment that you are making. Um, I knew some of my friends that did it just to get the pastor off their back. Because once you were baptized, he left you alone but he would hound you about being baptized, and so some of my friends just did it so that he would leave them alone. He'd quit bugging them about it. Um, also, that church believed that you weren't saved until you were baptized, and so they believed in baptismal regeneration is what that's called, and that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, uh, which was wrong thinking, too. We didn't know it at the time. We've learned it since then. Um, but baptism is, and this is C, baptism is a symbol. That's all it is. It's symbolic of that change that has happened on the inside. Um, it's an ordinance. It's a visible sign uh, which points to the truth of the Christian faith happening within you. Uh, it's a symbol of the unseen by use of what is seen. Um, so it's a demonstration of what, what uh, God has done in your life. So what does it signify? It, it, it signifies my identification with Christ. Romans chapter 6 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Uh, the believer's identification with Christ in burial and resurrection. Now there's a lot of forms and methods to baptism. Um, we here believe in immersion. Otherwise your whole body goes all the way under the water. And if you've ever... Uh, seen a baptismal service here or attended one here, you'll know that everyone's getting wet, all right, head to toe. Um, and the reason why we believe that is because the word baptize or baptizo in the Greek means to immerse. 
uh, not just get a little wet, but I mean to totally douse with water and, and totally immerse and totally under every bit of you. Um, and so that's why we do it that way. Now, there's even a lot of methods within that. Um, I was baptized once backwards. Okay, so just like we do here, uh, Denny or whoever's in the, in the tank and, and baptizing takes them down once and brings them right back up. And then they're baptized. Um, some go forward. Now the reason, and again, it's symbolic. So there's reasons for it all. The reason why we go backwards is you're buried and you raise again. So you're signifying dying, being buried, and raised to new life, ready to move forward. My wife was dunked three times. I keep telling her it's because she needed it um, for it to stick. Um, but their reason was in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they went down once for each person of the Trinity. Um, she didn't ever buy the, the three because she needed it, but uh, that's why I keep telling her. So um, when we enter the water, we leave the old life of sin. And, and that water symbolizes that cleansing agent. And then we come out to newness of life, total immersion beneath the water. Um, we are spiritually buried with Christ. And uh, now, there's nothing wrong. I know there are some instances for physical reasons that a person may not be able to be immersed. Um, you know what? There's nothing magical about it. Like I said, it's a symbol. Okay? So there's not a, a necessarily a right or wrong method. There is right or wrong teaching and doctrine about baptism, but there's no right or wrong method. And so we can't get all hung up on, on the method of baptism. This is the way we choose to do it. But if there's someone that, that physically cannot get into a baptismal tank that cannot go underwater for whatever reason, fine. We'll do it some other way. Um, and so that doesn't need to keep someone from making that outward sign. Um, we're raised out of the water, spiritually resurrected to a new, a new life. So I encourage you, if you've not been baptized, consider it. If you're a believer here tonight and you've never been baptized, you've never gone through water baptism, consider it. Um, we do baptisms uh, two or three times a year. Um, or if we have 10 people that say, I want to be baptized, then probably in two or three weeks, we're going to have another baptismal service. So there's no, again, we, don't, we, we do it a couple times a year um, because that's just our tradition, but we're not limited to that. Um, I know two small groups, one I led, and I think uh, Ray J's uh, did a baptismal service as a small group, which is just an awesome thing person accepted Christ in that group and wanted to follow in that group with that group and, and uh, it was a, a really neat experience. Um, so consider baptism if you've never been baptized. Yes, good point. Baptizing children. Um, we do not practice infant baptism uh, or well, yeah, we'll baptize children, but they make that decision because it has to be. And, and so usually they're, you know, eight or nine years old is probably about as young as we've ever gone because at that age, they are able, they have to be able to tell us why they want to be baptized. And because my mom wants it or my dad wants it, doesn't work. Okay, they have to be able to tell us. And we will ask them questions. We'll ask them lots of questions so that they can't just regurgitate what mom and dad have told them 
to tell us in answer to the question because it's not just a frivolous thing. So we don't baptize infants because it has to be a personal choice. Following Christ is a personal choice. Okay, John said in, in part of that when he called them a brood of vipers, you think because you're Abraham's sons and daughters that you're going to be saved. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with who your parents or your grandparents are. It has to be your personal choice. And so we make sure that kids have that personal choice, that they have made a commitment. And again, an eight and nine-year-old's understanding of that isn't going to be the same as an adult's understanding of that necessarily. And so we, we understand that. But if they, they understand that this is what they want to do because it's an outward sign of an inward change, then yes, we, we baptize. Now, I, I had the privilege of baptizing my oldest daughter uh, when she was about 12. Um, I now have a 13-year-old who's thinking seriously about it and a 10-year-old that doesn't take showers. So getting him in the tank <laughs> might be, you know, it'll be a while before he's actually, he does take showers. But, um, so it has to be their choice. And, you know, she just started asking why baptized, why, you know, they, they learned about it in, in T&L and they talked about it in some other areas and she's starting to ask questions. So I'm guessing she won't be too far behind in taking that, that step. Any other questions on baptism? Okay, Jesus went from there. We see that uh, in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, I love it when they do the same chapters because it's just easier to remember. Um, it says Jesus was led after, he, after the, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in what John describes or, or what they all describe as a dove descending upon him. And God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was led by the spirit that, that landed upon him and was taken out to the desert. Because not only did Jesus need to relate to humans in obedience to the law, he needed to relate in, in baptism and, and all of those other uh, circumcision and all the other the rituals and the requirements of the law, but he had to relate to us in temptation as well that he was being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness in order to be tempted. Matthew chapter 4 says, And Jesus was led, led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city in Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. I think someone, I read somewhere where it was like over 400 feet in the air. I mean, it was very high. He said, the devil took him there. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms in the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hebrews chapter 4, I think I have it quoted in your notes, said, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has been tempted the way you have been tempted? Do you think Jesus has faced the temptations that you face? Because sometimes when we are, we, when we are faced with a temptation to a sin, a sin that Hebrews says so easily entangles us, one that we continue to trip over, over and over and over again, that we tend to think we're the only ones who suffer with this. Do you really believe that Jesus has been tempted in every way that you have? Because if he has, then he understands your weakness. He understands where you are. He understands the struggle. He understands the trigger mechanism in your head that, that, is, that, that sometimes misfires and short circuits that causes you to want the thing you know is wrong and, and the whole Romans chapter 7, that the thing I want to do, I can't do, I don't do, but I, the thing I don't want to do, I do, and it seems like sin is right there with me the whole time. Yeah, it is. Jesus understands that. We have to really believe that we have a high priest, that we have Jesus in heaven who is there on our behalf, representing us on our behalf, that has been tempted in every way that we have been. Here we have three temptations that he goes through. Why was Jesus tempted? One, Adam represented all men when he fell. Okay, we have to understand this, that when Adam fell, he represented the entire human race in that sinfulness. Okay? It wasn't just Adam that was going to suffer the consequences. Every male, female born after him was going to suffer from that. And so Adam is a representative of the entire human race. And Christ, who is referred to in Romans as the second Adam, represented all men in righteousness. That's interesting. We were just talking about this in the Truth Project this morning in Sunday school. And a lot of people say, well, it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair that Adam represented me because I may not have sinned. So why was it? It's, it's unfair that Adam, that we're all paying for Adam's sin. Okay, but is it fair that Jesus is dying for all of us? Or do you want to do that on your own too? You see, we can't have it both ways. We're either going to have Adam represent us in sin and Jesus represent us in righteousness or you're on your own. How do you want it? Because those are, those are the rules. That's the way it's been laid out. And so it is a good thing that Adam represents all of us because I guarantee you we all sin. We all have the sin nature that we had from Adam, but even if we didn't, we would have sinned. We would have done just what Adam did. Maybe not exactly that sin, but we would have found something to do that would have been an abomination to God, that would have gone against his character. Romans chapter 5, great chapter in Romans. Go through, read that at some point. Um, Adam and Jesus were both representatives of mankind in relationship with God. And so Paul contrasts Adam's failure with Christ's victory. And we have to understand that Jesus had to be tempted in every way so that he could be victorious over that sin. The work of Christ, R.C. Sproul says, the work of Christ involved much more than offering an atonement to pay for the sins of his people. 
He also had to fulfill all righteousness in order to merit the rewards of the covenant for himself and those whom he represented. For Christ to be our Savior, he not only had to die for our sins, but he also had to live a life of obedience that he might be our righteousness. I think we said a couple weeks ago that Jesus had to, not only are we saved by his death, but we're saved by his life. Because if he hadn't fulfilled all righteousness, his death would have been nothing. It wouldn't have meant anything. It would have been like you and me dying. Okay, I'm not going to die and save anyone because I haven't fulfilled all righteousness. And so Christ had to be tempted. He had to go through that temptation to prove or to show that he was righteous, that he had not fallen. We have to also understand the difference between original sin and active sin. Okay, original sin is the result, is what resulted from Adam and Eve's disobedience. It's not that Adam and Eve sinned. That original sin is not them eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Original sin means what happened, the result or the consequence of their eating that fruit. Okay, we a lot of times call it the sin nature, uh, that we all have original sin. Okay, it's the fact that a fallen nature has been passed on to every child born after Adam and Eve. Okay, so R.C. Sproul said original sin is not an act. It is a condition that infects every one of us. It's the sin nature, the fallen nature, original sin. Those are all interchangeable. We have to understand that. Um, that because of this sin nature, because of this original sin, we are in bondage to sin. We as a human race are a slave to sin. Our natural reaction is for evil. Look at the world. Shouldn't take me a whole lot to convince you of that. We also looked at the Truth Project today that, that many want to believe that man is naturally good, that we're basically good on the inside, and that evil comes because there is no God. That's, that's their whole theory, that you know, because there's sin and suffering in the world, God does not exist. Well, where did that evil come from? If there is evil in the world, where did it come from? Well, it came from us because we're not naturally good, we're naturally evil, and that's because of the original sin. Now, understand this. Um, well, Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become in six short chapters, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Okay, it hadn't changed any. Okay, that was before Noah. hasn't changed any since then. Man is naturally evil because of that original sin. And we've got to understand, though, that Jesus was born without that original sin. Okay? Because he was not conceived by Joseph, he was conceived by who? The Holy Spirit, overshadowing Mary. Okay, so Joseph passed on the original sin to every generation after him. The Holy Spirit passed on an unfallen, holy nature to Jesus. So Jesus was not born with original sin. Okay? Um, he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Then we have active sin. This is the living out of the sin nature. This is because we have original sin, we have active sin. We are involved in it. Okay, we commit those sins. It's proof of man's fallen state. Jesus lived a life that was not touched by the original sin and did not commit an act of sin. Okay, we got to understand both of those things. He was not conceived in original sin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he never committed an act of sin. 
okay? But here's the question. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have committed a sin? Most of you are shaking your head no. Shake it like this. Yes, he could have. Because if he could not have, if he could not have sinned, then the whole thing was a charade. If he did not have the option of sinning, then going through the temptation and living a life of, uh, of fulfilling all of the, the righteousness wouldn't have mattered. He wouldn't have needed to do all that. He went through it because we have a high priest who understands us because he had the ability to sin and he chose wisely every single time. Some Christians ask, was it really possible for Jesus to have sinned? If it was humanly impossible for Jesus to have sinned, then was his test merely a charade? Some insist that since God cannot possibly sin and that Jesus was God incarnate, then it was impossible for Jesus to have sinned. The issue here focuses on how we understand the two natures of Christ. Obviously, the divine nature of Jesus does not have the ability to sin, but with respect to the role of Jesus as the new Adam, the human side, we are concerned with his human nature. In Jesus, the divine nature was united with an unfallen human nature. That means that the human nature did not have original sin. The human nature, like Adam before the fall, had the ability to sin and the ability to not to. Jesus had a very same like human nature that Adam had prior to the fall. He had to in order to fulfill all righteousness. You see, he had to be just like Adam. Adam was created with an unfallen nature. The temptation was presented before him and he chose poorly. In order for Jesus to be our righteousness, in order for him to fulfill all righteousness and be our Savior, he had to be created with an unfallen nature and have temptation thrown in front of him and choose wisely so that he could be our Savior, so that he wouldn't just fall the way Adam had fallen. So he was like Adam, but the temptation process was a little different. Compare with me just for a while, humor me, the contrast between Adam and Eve and Jesus, okay? Where were Adam and Eve? In the garden. What was the garden like? Okay, we don't have really good pictures, but let's just say that top one was like the Garden of Eden. We have waterfalls. We have lush greenery. We have animals that get along. We have fruit and trees, and, and everything they could possibly want to eat was there right before them. It was set up as paradise. It was a perfect setting. Where was Jesus? The bottom picture. He was in the wilderness and had not eaten or drank anything for 40 days. Okay. I bit the bullet, had my colonoscopy last week. I had to go 24 hours without eating. I was allowed to drink anything clear liquid. At lunch, I was dying. Okay, I can skip breakfast, no big deal. But by 11.30, my time clock clicked in, and I needed Taco Bell. But I wasn't allowed to eat. And then to make it worse, at 6 o'clock, I had to start drinking that stuff. Jesus went 40 days no food, no drink, in the desert. 
with Satan badgering him while he was there. No, I know guys that have gone 40 days. Well, in the desert, it, yes, probably would be. Uh, but I know people who have done 40-day fasts. Um, don't just decide tomorrow you're going to do it. Not without drinking. They, they would drink along with it. Um, but yeah, so imagine the physical turmoil that his body was going through, the dehydration, the, uh, the, the hunger, and, and all of that. Okay? Adam and Eve, full stomach. They had breakfast. Okay? They ate luscious breakfast, I'm sure. Came to lunch, saw the tree, thought it was good. Let's eat this too. As I said, Jesus, 40-day fast. Adam and Eve had one another. Adam could have stopped Eve, could have reasoned with her, could have talked her out of it, but he didn't. He jumped in. Apple pie sounded good. Jesus was all alone. He was by himself. Adam and Eve, no one had ever sinned before. Sin wasn't all around them. Sin had never occurred to this point in a human life with Adam and Eve. Jesus 30 years in an incredibly sinful society. Sin all around him. Which is easier? For you to sin in church? When it's set up for you to to be praising and learning and in the word? Or at home when you're by yourself? At home when you're by yourself. Few of us probably, we might sin in our own thought life when we're sitting in church, but we got a better chance of not sinning here than we do when we're out in the world or at work or whatever. Jesus, all alone in the desert, Adam and Eve, paradise together, going through life. No one had ever sinned. Jesus, a culture of sin. Adam and Eve, it was an instant. Satan showed up that snake in the tree, although I don't believe he really was a snake because he hadn't lost his feet at this point. He had legs. Many believe that he actually stood on the two hind legs, that he walked just like people walk. And the curse was that then your belly, the rest of your life, you're going to eat dust, you're going to wallow in it. Um, But it was an instant. Satan showed up, boom, give the temptation, and, and gone. Jesus had it for 40 days. Jesus had the badgering for 40 days. Satan was there tormenting him, bugging him, tempting him, taunting him. Adam and Eve had an instant. And so you see that Adam and Eve were set up to not fall. And yet they did. Jesus had everything working against him. And yet he didn't. He was sinless. We need to understand how temptation works. James chapter 1, in our, in our own life, we need to understand. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. Understand that God was not tempting Jesus here. God does not tempt you. Okay? The Holy Spirit led him out to the wilderness, and Satan tempted him. The devil tempted him. And so Satan will tempt you. God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. Okay? Ted is tempted when by Ted's own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
Understand the process. These are fishing terms, okay? It's a lure, it's a hook, it's a setting the hook, okay? By his own evil desire, he's dragged away. He is lured in. The hook gets set, he is dragged away and enticed, okay? These are all fishing terms, which they would understand uh, as, as fishermen. So understand that process. That at any of those moments, before the hook is set and we're dragged away, what does God do? Corinthians. He gives us a way of escape. Jesus didn't have a way out. Satan wasn't going to let him off here. Okay? Satan wanted everything for Jesus to fall at that point. Because if Satan could get him to fall just once, in any little way, he won. And he knew that. You and me, at any point, have a way out. You and me at any point, because God understands. We have a high priest who understands our weakness because he's been tempted every way we've been tempted. Always provides us with an exit ramp. We just have to be aware and take it. Satan is very subtle. Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just asking a question. Did God really say that? You see, with Jesus, as we, as we look at, at the subtlety and the craftiness of, of Satan, even with Christ, he was crafty. He attacked first. With Jesus, he attacked his physical desire. What was Jesus probably more than anything after 40 days? Thirsty and hungry. And so what does Satan do? I'll bet that you could turn that rock into a loaf of bread. Hungry, aren't you? Okay, the worst thing in the world was watching TV when I couldn't eat because there are food commercials coming on about 5 o'clock nonstop. Just the thought, Jesus said, you know, you could, you could turn that. If, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread, and then you could eat. Jesus was attacked through his hunger. A very legitimate desire. Okay? Very legitimate. But many times we are, to tempt, are tempted to fill a legitimate desire by using some illegitimate means. So it's our desire that entices us. Okay? Remember back in, in, in James. It says each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Now some are evil desires, some are not. We're just, we're, there's desires that God has given us. Hunger being one of them. It's a good thing. Tells us we need to eat. Our body's needing nourishment. Thirst. Good thing. We need water. Got to keep drinking. Okay? So, but sometimes we seek an illegitimate way to meet that. So he attacks a physical desire. How many of you have ever had Satan attack you through a physical desire? Okay? You want to fulfill something, a need that you have, legitimate need, in an illegitimate way. He works that way. He also attacks our spiritual state. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Did God really say? You see, he's going he's to raise questions. He's going to raise doubt about who you are. Now, interesting, who was Jesus? He was the son of God, right? Because God had just told him that 40 days earlier. When he was baptized, 
This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And now Satan's come and going, if you are the son of God, who are you? Who are you? We have to understand who we are, that we too, as a believer, we are the sons and daughters of God. We are the child, the children of God. That we are a Christian, but how many times does Satan try to convince you that you aren't? Because if you were a true believer, you wouldn't think like that. If you were a true believer, you wouldn't have done that. You know, a Christian doesn't act that way. A Christian doesn't think that way. A Christian doesn't do this. A Christian does this, 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 and this. And if you haven't done those things, then how do you call yourself a believer? Satan ever beat you up like that? If you are a child of God, See, Satan's going to question it. But we're told, 1 John, that he wrote these things that we might know that we are saved. That we might know we are a child of God. And we can throw that right back in and say, what do you mean, if? I am. I am a believer. I am a child of God. I am a Christian. You think maybe that's one of our ways out? That's one of the exit ramps? To remind Satan who he is and who we are and who we serve and what his end's going to be and what our end's going to be. We don't have to fight fair with the enemy. He's going to attack our spiritual state and try to convince you you're not really a believer. Because if you were, you wouldn't even be thinking this way. Third thing is he attacks our purpose. Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Took him to a high mountain, which there were a lot of them there. Spread it out, and somehow a vision or whatever of all the kingdoms of the world appeared. And he said, I will give you all of these. Were they his to give away? Yeah, they were. He's the ruler of this world. They were his to give away. He said, all you have to do is just give me a little dip. Just bow a little to me. Just worship. I need just, just a little something. Okay? You don't have to go the whole way down on your knees and all this. Just... Give me a little head nod. You see, you don't have to do a lot to make Satan happy. Just divert a little bit. You don't have to go full bore with it. Just give me a little nod. A little something that tells me you're listening to me. A little something that tells me I've got your attention. That that you're not listening to God right now. Just let me know that I've got you a little bit. It's all Satan wants. You'd be happy with that. Had Jesus done that, we wouldn't be here now. I don't know what it would be like. God had already promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would have to suffer first in order to get them. Satan was giving him an easy way out. Satan never offered you an easy way out. Something that, you know what, you can avoid all that pain. You can avoid all that suffering. You can avoid that embarrassment. Let's just do it my way. Let's go and let's do it this way. Let's not tell anyone you're a Christian because that'll just ruffle a few feathers with your family, with your friends. Let's just go about doing things the way we always did. Just a little, little bow, little head nod. Let me know you're listening to me. That's all he wants. And we forget our whole purpose of being a child of the king. 
And then if none of those things work, Satan comes down and he attacks Scripture. He's the master manipulator of truth. Satan will twist the truth and make it sound good when he says, he actually quotes scripture. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it's also written, do not, judge, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus understood scripture. He came right back with truth. Satan wants to manipulate truth, which is why it's so important for us to know truth. So that we cannot be easily deceived. So that we cannot be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by everything that comes, comes down. That we will not be held captive by the weak philosophy, by the human thinking that this world gives us. Because in almost all of them, there's a little bit of truth. Because Satan knows if he just totally blows it all out and doesn't have a little bit of truth in there, who's going to believe it? So he says, I'm going to take this big old lie and I'm going to put a little enough truth in there that will get people to believe it and be satisfied with it. Folks, we need to know the truth. It's imperative. We have to be in the Word. We have to know the truth. What was the end result? I didn't read the last verse. What was the end result of all this tempting? What happened at the end? Satan left, and who came? Angels to minister to him. Just like Satan said, if you will throw yourself off this temple, it says that the angels will come and not let you hurt your foot. And so Jesus said, no, you can't test the Lord your God. And as soon as Satan left, the what? Angels came and protected him, fed him, nourished him. You see, God rewarded that. God, God fulfilled uh, his, his desire through Christ. But Jesus had to go through that temptation in order to be our Savior. Because he had to face the same thing even to the nth degree that Adam faced. And yet he chose wisely. Which brings us to the home base. Okay? After the temptation, Jesus is now ready to start his ministry. Um, his baptism, his temptation in the desert, he then went back up north. Okay? The temptation would have happened down in here in the desert somewhere right after the baptism. The Holy Spirit led him out somewhere into the desert. He went back home to Galilee, back to Nazareth, um, is what we can read in Luke, that he went back um, to kind of set up home base. Um, there had been six weeks of fasting and temptation, that, that the 40 days that he was there. Um, John continued to preach. John continued to preach to the, the, the idea of, of uh, baptism for the uh, repentance for, for the forgiveness of sin. And so he continued preaching. The whole time Jesus was being tempted. And the preaching wound him up in jail. Uh, he ticked enough people off that they threw him into jail for it. And it wasn't until he was thrown into jail that Jesus started preaching. He waited for John to be thrown into jail. And as soon as he heard that John had been thrown into jail, he said, all right, my time has come. Because he couldn't overlap him. He couldn't overlap John. John had to complete his journey, had to complete his purpose. And then Jesus come on the scene because John was the forerunner. They weren't going to go at the same time. John had to finish before Jesus started. And we see that uh, um, 
He goes back to Nazareth. Luke elaborates on this, that he was not well received in, in Nazareth. He was driven out of town. They attempted to throw him off a cliff. That's when he just miraculously escaped through the, cl- uh, the crowd. Um, they were wanting to throw him over, and all of a sudden he's kind of like, where'd he go? Um, and then after leaving Nazareth, he settled in Capernaum, which is up just a little bit farther north. Um, and this is really where he starts his ministry. His first miracle is what? Turning the water into wine. That happened in Canaan um, at the wedding feast there. And so most of his ministry happens right around here. This is the Sea of Galilee. And so we're going to pick up right there with uh, next week. We're gonna, it's called Jesus Starting Small because he starts with just picking 12 men, preaching a little here and a little there and a little there and starting to draw his group together before he really takes it on the road and uh, goes all over the area. So that's where, we will, uh, that's where we'll pick up next week. Let me pray for you, and then we'll be out of here. Father, thank you that you are our God. Uh, thank you again for your truth that sets us free. Thank you for Jesus that was willing to endure not only the cross, but, but the temptation to endure all of life and the trials that come with it, that he might be qualified, that he might fulfill all righteousness, that we might be called righteous, through him. Father, thank you that you have provided that way and that it is really as simple as that. Father, would you make us strong? Would you, would you allow us this week to see the way out, to see the exit ramp that, that we can take in your strength and be victorious over the enemy? Lord, that we would conquer sin, that we would, would put to death the original sin within us, but that we would not commit the active the, the, the moment-by-moment sin. Father, help us to live those righteous lives, to live like a child of the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week.